Um, last week, I told you, I came in, you know, I, I dropped in, I preached, uh, and I, dro- I ran right out. I said I was sick, but I told you I was getting better. I lied. I went home yet last week, took a nap, and then was out for another week. So, but I think I am better now. Just a cold. I told my wife this morning, I said, look, I'm so thankful for this cold that this is all I'm dealing with because whatever it was that sidelined me the last two weeks was awful. But I appreciate you guys praying for me um, and thinking of me while I was sick. Those who reached out, texted, called, uh, sent soup, all that. Grateful, grateful, grateful. I want to read from John chapter 15 this morning, starting in verse 12. Jesus says to his disciples, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, he says, these things I command to you for one reason. Why? So that you will love one another. This morning, we're continuing our study on John chapter 15. And Jesus says, all throughout John chapter 15, he says there's this spiritual principle of how, if we want to experience spiritual growth, there's a spiritual principle. And that is that if we abide in Christ, we will bear fruit. If we abide in Christ, we will experience spiritual growth. One of the ways that this is evident, Jesus says that when we abide in Christ, we will develop a love for one another, for other Christians. And the fruit of that uh, will be Christian community. So if we abide in Christ, we will, uh, we, will abi- we abide in Christ's love, we experience the love of Christ. Christ's love then compels us to love one another, and that then forms what we know as Christian community. And that's something that I think most of us here want. We want faith friendships. We want spiritual community. We want spiritual friendship. But how do we experience that in the way that God wants for us? Jesus tells us. He says, as I've loved you, that's how you love one another. See, Christian community is formed like this. Experience the love of Jesus. Receive the love of Jesus. Abide in the love of Jesus. And then show that love to one another. And that's why our mission statement as a church is ordered the way that it is. The order of our mission statement, knowing Christ, growing together, going into the world, is not random. We would never put knowing Christ last because we can't grow together as a faith family if we don't first know Christ for who he is. Spiritual friendships, Christ-honoring friendships, can only develop first if if we first abide in Christ. So we must know Christ before we can grow together. And I want us to actually backtrack. I read from John chapter 15, but I want us to backtrack a little bit to John chapter 13 this morning. Um, It's still part of the same dinner conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Jesus is, earlier Jesus was, uh, Jesus in John chapter 15 is actually retelling his disciples something he already told them two chapters earlier, which was just a few moments earlier. But Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13, 34, He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And I love this next line. By this, 
people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What Jesus just said is the way that you reach your city, the way that people will know that there's Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the way that the church loves each other. And we talk, and once again, back to our mission statement. What does it mean to go into the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus to our city? One of the best ways we can preach the gospel of Jesus to our city is that if we love each other really well. If we do church really well, I mean, if we are the family of God well, that will be a magnet to souls in our community that are longing for something more meaningful than what they're experiencing. Jesus says, by, if, by, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this is Jesus' last evening with his disciples before he's going to be crucified. And on this night, he eats with them, he offers his final words to them, and then he does something that would have shocked them all. He gets down on his hands and his knees, and he washes their feet. On Jesus' final night with his disciples, he is interested in one thing and one thing only, and that is showing them how to love one another as a faith family. And he's taught them for three years now. They've heard his sermons. They've seen his miracles. They've heard all his stories and parables and all of that. But Jesus understands in this final moment that his disciples are not going to know how to love just by hearing sermons about love. They're only going to know how to love the world that he's entrusting to them by them experiencing his love. And if, you want, if we want to love one another like Jesus loves us, we have to experience, first experience Jesus' love for us. And so what I want to do today is I just want to look at, throughout John chapter 13, two ways that Jesus demonstrates what love is and, 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 and how Jesus shows us what it means as he has loved us, how we can love one another. And so the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus demonstrates love by showing radical humility. In this chapter, we see in John chapter 13, we see in the first 17 verses or so, there's a scene where Jesus gets up from the table where they have been eating the Passover meal, and he gets up, and like I said, he does something shocking. Verse 4, it says, Jesus rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And the disciples were stunned by this. They would have been absolutely floored that Jesus, their teacher, would have gotten on the ground and washed their feet. Peter even tells Jesus, like, Jesus, I'm not going to let you do this. You're like, verse 8, he's like, Jesus, you're not touching my feet. You're not going to do that. Peter says, Lord, I can't let you do this. It's too demeaning. It's too humiliating. And in this culture... First century Palestinian climate culture, feet were considered incredibly dirty. It was hot, it was dry, it would have been typical for every people wore sandals. People's feet would have been so dirty and grimy and smelly. And so bending down to wash someone's feet would have been out of the question. It would have been disgusting. In fact, it was so demeaning that Jewish rabbis enacted a law that said slaves could not be asked to untie their master's sandals. Now, slaves were, they could do, I mean, they could be forced to do anything. But the Jewish rabbis said that you cannot force a slave to touch a master's sandals because it's just too humiliating. 
They understood touching someone's feet in this culture to be so humiliating that even slaves had legal protections from having to touch their master's feet. But here's Jesus in this moment. In his final moments, Jesus is the master, yet he's going even lower than a slave. He's giving up his rights. He's giving up his protections to serve and to love others in spite of who he is. You hear what I said? Jesus served others in spite of who he was. He was the king of kings, the Lord of lords that we just sang about. He was the one who just moments later would be crucified and rise from the dead for the sins of the world. He knew who he was, but even in spite of knowing who he was, he lowered himself and humbly served his disciples. Jesus' humility is most clearly articulated in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul says, have this in mind, uh, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, to be humble. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Jesus didn't give some of himself to his disciples. Jesus didn't give some of himself to us. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have you guys ever thought about this? Like for Jesus to, like at Christmas time, we think about the incarnation. Like for Jesus to come into this world, Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father for all of eternity in heaven. And in a moment's notice in Galatians, in, the, in Galatians chapter 2, it says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, and Jesus steps down from the right hand of the Father and is born as a child in Nazareth and is, grows up a poor life, spends most of his adult life homeless, and dies a thief's death on a cross. We think, oh, Jesus died for me, but Jesus emptied himself for you. He didn't just give his life. He gave his all, all of his eternity for you. He emptied himself by becoming in the, form, in the likeness of men, in the form of a servant, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, but his humility goes far greater than that. He emptied himself the infinite distance from heaven to earth. He was born of a virgin. He was raised in Nazareth, and he died a thief's death on the cross. And Romans 5.8 shows us that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he is demonstrating true love for us. And true love is humility on display. He's showing us how to love. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. In washing the disciples' feet, Jesus served the disciples in spite of who he was. He was the king, yet he lowered himself to wash feet. And in coming to earth and in emptying himself and in dying in our place, he serves us in spite of who he is. He gave his life. That is not something we deserved. But yet he lowered himself as low as he could go into the grave so that you and I could live for eternity with him. That's love. That's humility. And that, love is humility. And it means that to truly, for us to truly love one another as a church family, that means that each one of us has to get this. 
We have to get that as God has, as Christ has loved us, as he has humbled himself before us, we must humble ourselves before others. And that means every one of you in this room, every one of you, there is no person here that is below you or beneath you. And that there is no job that is beneath you or below you. To love one another as a family both means that we humble ourselves and that we wash each other's feet, mostly figuratively, but sometimes maybe even literally. I think a good example in our church is Wanda Padilla, who humbles herself every week. You know, Wanda loves to worship. Like, she loves music, and she loves to worship God through, through music, but you know what she's doing most every week during the music? She's out in the hallway making sure that those of you who are late are greeted with a smile and are welcomed when you get to church, that there is somebody to say, we're glad you're here. And Wanda almost every single week says, I will sacrifice those three songs that I would love to be a part of so that the people who walk in those doors a little late, but she's out there and she's got a smile on her face and she's welcoming you. She's giving up her rights. She could say, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to hear the songs. But she says, you know what? I would rather the people of this congregation feel welcome when they come to be a part of this family every Sunday morning. And so she gives herself up week in and week out. And so we, we should honor her for that. And we're all grateful for it. We all love Wanda because of it. But Jesus goes even further than Jesus. We ought to humble ourselves. What does that look like for you? To humble yourself before us and serve us. What does that look like for me to humble myself before you and serve you? That is the question that we must ask. As we look to who Jesus is, we must then ask ourselves, how are we going to show the love of Christ to the people in this family that God has placed us in? So humility is one way Jesus shows love. The second is that Jesus demonstrates love by showing radical patience and radical forgiveness. In this passage, I love that if you read this, you'll notice that Jesus washes all of the disciples' feet, even Judas's. In verse 2 of chapter 13, it says that Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew this. Yet Jesus still washed Judas's feet. And as he is washing their feet, he even gives Judas the opportunity to repent and receive forgiveness. You see, as this foot washing was going on, Jesus is bowing, bowing down, washing all the disciples' feet, and they're all going, what is going on? Why are they washing my feet? There is a whole other story being played that only two people in that room are aware of, Jesus and Judas. There was a behind-the-scenes thing happening. Jesus knew the Scripture would have to be fulfilled. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. Judas had already decided in his heart. It had already been lined up for him to give up Jesus' location and to take the pieces of money and to give Jesus up for something so trivial as a sack of silver. And Jesus quotes Psalm 40 when he says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus knew what Judas was doing. Judas had already made the arrangements to sell Jesus' location and have Jesus arrested and murdered. And so at this moment, we're able to see not only Jesus' humility in washing Judas' feet, but his love and his patience, and in such a degree that the other disciples didn't even understand it at the moment. You know, earlier I mentioned that Jesus served in spite of who he was. But here we also see that Jesus serves in spite of who they are. 
And that ought to be a lesson for us as well. Sometimes you're like, the people in this church, they don't deserve, like, people in my growth group, I do so much, they don't do it. We serve not only in spite of who we are and who we think we are, but we serve in spite of who others are as well. Even when they don't deserve it, we serve. Because that is what it means to model the love of Jesus. But not just Judas here in this scenario is, is there something going on, but even Simon Peter. Jesus says at the end of this chapter that, one of Je- that Pe- he says to Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, he says, you're going to deny me three times. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to do it. Or Peter's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And Jesus says, yeah, you're going to do it. Before the cock, throws, cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. And in all of this, Jesus still, he knows this. And yet he's still washing Peter's feet. And, all, and throughout all of this, Jesus remains patient and loving, offering forgiveness. And we will see in time that Judas rejects Jesus' forgiveness and Peter repents and receives Christ's forgiveness. But the, there's no difference between the offer. Jesus offered the forgiveness to both of them. Just one chose to receive it, one did not. And Jesus is showing us that it doesn't matter what you've done. Whatever you've done, you're in this room this morning and you're, you brought, you've got some memory of some past mistake that is haunting you and Jesus is showing us by washing Judas and Peter's feet, it doesn't matter what you've done or how offensive you've been toward God. Jesus stands ready to forgive. Always. Because he is gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. And you know, as Jesus is serving Judas, he's showing us how to do what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The reason that we as Christians can love our enemies is because Christ demonstrated how by loving us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still children of God's wrath, In his mercy, he gave himself up for us. See, we are all just like Judas and Peter. You and I, we are all just like Judas and Peter. We have all disobeyed, we've all rebelled, we've all denied, we've all offended, and we've all blasphemed our holy God. But in love, he bends down to wash us. He has offered forgiveness even when we don't forgive it. And the question of whether or not you are in Christ is have you received that forgiveness? Do you believe that whatever mistake you're bringing in here today, whatever you're carrying with you, the shame, the guilt, the fear, the whatever, do you believe that Jesus would wash that from you? See, Judas didn't believe it. And after he realized he had sinned greatly, he could not, he could not bring himself to receive God's forgiveness, and he killed himself. But Peter's story turned out differently. Peter met Jesus on a seashore where Jesus said, a resurrected Jesus says, Peter, I know you denied me, but come back. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter got a second chance because Peter was willing to receive Jesus' forgiveness. And that forgiveness is offered to you and to me. Whatever shame, whatever fear, whatever guilt you have, that is offered to you. And when you experience that forgiveness, and when you experience that patience of God with you, that ought to create a heart of you, that ought to create in your heart a heart that is forgiving toward others, a heart that does not hold grudges, a heart that does not hold resentment and bitterness toward others. And the test of whether you have, I'll say this, this is a strong statement, but I, I, think, I think the scriptures back it up. The test of whether you are abiding in Christ 
is this. Are you a forgiving person? Are you a forgiving person? If you, if you want to know, am I abiding in Christ? The test of your spiritual maturity, the test of whether you are ready to engage in the life of a church family is this. Are you a forgiving person? When you think of all that God has forgiven you for, and you begin to see your own life, and if you are still able to hold bitterness and anger and judgment toward others, then that is a lesson, that, that, is, a, uh, uh, that is a diagnosis to you that you need to go back to Christ. And you need to abide in Him until He is abiding in you. Any bitterness and anger and judgment that you're holding on to ought to look shallow in comparison to what God has forgiven you of. And so I would say to you, if you, if you are you a forgiving person? You say, no, I'm, I'm not a forgiving person. Then go to Christ. Abide in Christ and you can bear that fruit. See, as a minister, there have been many times where I've been brought in to mediate between church people. Church people can be brutal, you know? Not you. Other churches that I've been in. Other churches, not you. But I've been brought in to mediate between church people who are angry toward one another. Sometimes the reasons are very valid. I mean, sometimes we just hurt one another. We're sinners and we hurt one another. Sometimes the reasons are valid. Sometimes the reasons are so shallow. But in every case, when the people of God are bitter and angry and unforgiving toward one another, it hurts the witness of the gospel in the church. And people will say to me, well, you don't know what this person has done. You're right, I don't. But I do know this. In comparison to the forgiveness and the mercy that you have received in Christ, whatever conflict you have with this person looks like you're arguing over something trivial. Because God has forgiven you of full-on rebellion. God has forgiven you of all your disobedience. We can forgive others of whatever it is they've done to us, even when it hurts. Because the cost of, for Jesus to forgive us, it hurt, right? There's pain in forgiveness. You say, I can't forgive because it hurts too much. Once again, look to Christ. What did it cost to forgive us? It cost him his life. Abide in Christ, only then can you bear the fruit of forgiveness. See, in the church, in the church there will be times where we disagree with one another, and there will be people that make you so mad. That's what happens when sinners get together in a community, Right? But the test of our church's health and maturity and the test of your spiritual health and your spiritual maturity is whether or not we are gracious and forgiving and patient with one another. Jesus washed Judas' feet, Jesus washed Peter's feet, and Jesus took away your sin debt. Jesus demonstrated what it means to love by showing what it means to forgive. Now I want to give just a final observation. In the text that we're studying over the next several, or we've been studying over the last several weeks, is this, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. And so the point I want to, uh, the observation I just want to make is, or the point I want to say is why knowing Christ must come before growing together. See, when Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you, what's he doing? He's asking us, before we go and try to do church things, before we try to build small groups, before we try to build, you know, core groups, and we try to build discipleship groups, and we try to build friendships, before we do any of that, he's saying, first, meditate on who I am so that you can love one another the way that I love you. 
He's asking us first to reflect on his love, his humility, his forgiveness, and his sacrifice so that we can be motivated to love one another. And he is asking us to abide in him so that we can bear the fruit of love for one another. Jesus is saying that before we can know how to love one another correctly, we must first know and see that we are loved by him. And when we look at the gospel of Jesus, it ought to transform us. When we look at Jesus, when we abide in him, it ought to transform us. My former pastor, who I spent some time with this past week, says those who really believe the gospel show it by becoming like the gospel. Jesus told a story in Matthew 18. And it's about this dude, this man, who owed a king an enormous amount of money. Okay, so he owed, um, I mean, so this guy, he's just a regular guy, and he owes the king. He's borrowed some money from the state somehow, and he owes the king this enormous amount of money. The Bible, Jesus says 10,000 talents, which is an unimaginably large amount of money that Jesus throws out there. Jesus uses extreme hyperbole here. Scholars say that one talent is equivalent to 20 years worth of wages, And this man is 10,000 talents in debt. That is like saying, take your salary, whatever it is, multiply it by 200,000, and that's how much debt you have before the state. That's, I mean, Jesus is like, this guy is in a billion, trillion, jillion dollars of debt to the king. That's what Jesus is trying to say. He, what it, Jesus' point is he has a debt that he could never repay in a million lifetimes. Not through hard work, not through cheating the system. He couldn't uh, pay by asking for a loan from his grandmother. He couldn't do a GoFundMe. He couldn't do a Kickstarter. None of that. There is nothing he could do to repay this debt. And the day came when the balance was due. The man was called into the king's court to settle his debt. And of course, he couldn't afford to pay his debt. And so what does he do? Or what happens? He's sentenced to debtor's prison where he and his family would be indentured servants and would have to work for generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation until all that debt was paid off. This would have meant that pretty much for the, for, the, for not the, even the unforeseeable future, all of his ancestors for the, I mean, for generations and generations would be slaves to the state. This is a bad deal for this guy. And this man was hopeless. And so he throws himself on the ground and he begs for mercy and he begs and he pleads for more time to pay off the debt. He's crying. He's grabbing the guy's king's feet. Oh, please, please, please. And you're, th- and you're like, man, this dude, like, but then the most unexpected thing happens. The king begins to feel compassion for the man. And we're not really sure why. Jesus doesn't really say, and it's a parable. It's not a true story. But Jesus, or Jesus says the king looks up and he looks down at the man and he says, forget about it. You don't owe me anything. Your debt has been paid. And nobody could believe it. Like he had been forgiven such a huge amount of debt. He probably felt free for the first time in his life. Financial Peace University, one of the things we do in our financial peace class, when you get out of credit card debt, you like do a, a, a debt-free scream my wife and I did it several years ago, and we were like, screw it. It's a, it's a good feeling when that credit card debt is gone, when that school loan debt is gone. You're like, yes! That's what this guy was doing. He's walking out of the king's court, and he's probably moonwalking. He's probably doing all the things. He's like, I am free of the biggest weight that has been on my shoulders. My, I am free. 
And you're like, man, what a great story. Well, the story's not over. The story gets even more interesting. That same guy walks out of the king's court. He's in, now he's walking on Main Street. And on his way home, one of his friends comes up to him. And his friend owes him a few bucks. And this is probably a situation where these guys went out for wings one night. And the guy didn't have any cash on him. He's like, all right, man, I'll just pay you back later. They didn't have this before Venmo, PayPal. He's like, I'll just pay you later. Well, this man who's just been forgiven two or 10,000 talents, he's walking out, finds his buddy who owes him like 10 bucks, and he says, hey, man, don't you owe me some money? Don't you, you owe me 10 bucks. And the guy's like, yeah, man, sorry, I've had a tough week. Can I get the money later? And you would think, right? But the man, it says, the one who's been forgiven of so much begins to scream and yell and threaten to throw that guy in debtor's prison over a few bucks. And as Jesus was telling his story, everybody would have been rolling their eyes. They would have been like, nobody would act like that, Jesus. This is such a like, hyperbolic story. They would have, and, and Jesus would say, that's precisely the point. Jesus is saying that anyone who has experienced deep forgiveness or deep love or deep compassion ought to naturally and logically feel compelled to show deep forgiveness and show deep love for one for others if you have experienced if you if in here you are a follower of Jesus if you are in this room and at some point in your life you have given your life over to Christ and you have received the forgiveness of the cross and of the resurrection and your sin is no longer held against you. When you die, you know that there is a place in heaven prepared for you. That all your sin has been removed. And when the, God the Father and Judge looks at you, he sees the life of Jesus. And you receive Jesus' reward. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is your story. And if that is your story, do you realize how absurd it is for you to hold on to bitterness and anger and judgment toward others? That's the point that Jesus is making in that parable. Those who have been forgiven much, we should be able to forgive little, right? Jesus is not merely giving us an example to follow, but he's giving us our very motivation for being loving toward others. See, why do we love others? Why are we called as followers of Jesus to show compassion to others? 1 John 4.19 says that we love, why? Because he first loved us. Everything in our body fights against humility and patience and self-sacrifice, doesn't it? That's like the last thing we want to do. We want, we want to be a part of a church so that everybody else can serve us. We want to be a part, we want friendships so that friendships, so that they can do for us what we need them to do for us. But Jesus says, if you want to, if you want to, be a, if you want to experience true spiritual community, you've got to play your part. And that is to abide in me and show my love toward others. But if we've experienced the love of Jesus, it doesn't matter how much the humility and patience and self-sacrifice is hard for us. If we've experienced and abided in the love of Christ, we ought to feel compelled to show it. And that's what the gospel does. We have, the ten- we have this tendency to think that the gospel is the thing that we do, that the thing that gets us into heaven. But Jesus says all throughout John chapter 15 that the gospel is not just the thing that saves us, but it's the thing that makes us more like Jesus. Jesus says that as we abide in the gospel, as we abide in him, we will grow and we will bear fruit. And when we abide in Christ, that is the very thing that gives us the power to bear the fruit of humility, of sacrifice, of forgiveness, and of patience. 
And as we read through, you know, the fruit of the Spirit last week, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We hear that in like the first one. You're like, man, I want to be more loving. Don't you want to be more loving? How do you do that? You abide in Christ. See, after our worship service today, we're going to have a church family meeting. And I'm going to get up here. We're going to have, present the budget and all of that. And I'm going to share a little bit of my desire for the church, kind of church I want us to be in 2020. But I'll go ahead and tell you what I think God wants for our church and what God wants for each of our lives. And that is that he wants each of us to be so moved by what Christ has done for us that even in your sin, Jesus would bend down and lower himself into the world to live and die in your place. That even in your sin, that he would invite you to know him and to follow him and to spend eternity with him. That even in your sin, that he would send his spirit into your life to, conv- into your life to convict you and to comfort you and to guide you. That even in your sin, that he would place you in his church to be cared for and to have a place to care for others. God wants you to be so moved by the grace of Jesus, the love that you do not deserve that yet you have received. God wants you to be so moved by that that you would be compelled to show that grace to everyone in this family. And I imagine if all of us in this room were captivated by that Christ, if all of us were captivated by the love of Jesus in our lives, that we began serving one another as Christ has served us, there would be no lack in this room You know that? Like if all of us uh, were abiding in Christ and were loving one another as Jesus has called us to love, there would be, no one in this room would lack anything. You would have all the comfort, all the care, all the friendship, all the guidance that you need. But it takes all of us abiding in Christ and loving one another. Jesus tells us what would happen too if, 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 if we did this. He says, our city would take notice. He says, just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By all this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Every week we talk about Matthew 28, the Great Commission, how we want to reach our city. You know how we can reach our city? By loving one another really, really, really well. And creating a community that people in our city want to be a part of. Our whole mission statement as a church goes back to one thing. Knowing Christ through the scriptures, abiding in him. As we abide in him, we grow together as a family. And as we grow together as a family, we're able to go into the world and make disciples. It all flows from one thing, and that is abiding. You will show radical love to one another. And when you do this, people will see that you are my disciples. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. Let's pray.